When a key witness refused to testify against the defendant, the entire case was in jeopardy until the prosecutors found a new angle to take. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines. I do have two quick event announcements for you before we get started. The first one is that I'm going to be in Albuquerque for a live show on Sunday, March 5th at 4 p.m. We are finalizing the location details now and I'll leave information in the show notes. It's going to be me, Crime Lines, True Crime Bullshit, Already Gone, True Consequences, and True Crime Cases, and possibly a few others. And then on June 10th and 11th, I will be at CrimeCon UK in London. We are staying very close to the Tower of London, which seems pretty fitting. And if you use my code CRIMELINES at checkout, you will get 10% off your ticket price. Using that code also helps me as they comp some of my expenses based on how many people use that code. So for the full legal FTC compliant disclosure, I do have to inform you that I do get some benefit from that code. And I really do appreciate it if you are coming and decide to use my code. It helps out a lot as I do pay for all of these live shows and events and meetups that I travel to out of pocket. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into the case. We are going to start with Lynn Armstrong, who grew up in Pensacola, Florida, with a brother and two sisters. She attended Norwich University in Vermont, which is a senior military college. When she graduated, it was with a degree in international studies. And then she became an officer in the U.S. Army. In 1994, Lynn was stationed in Germany and was out at a club one night. She tried to order a drink at the bar. And the bartender said she had to talk to this guy who was sitting at the end of the bar. That man turned out to be Roger Reister, an enlisted soldier who had asked the bartender to basically refuse to serve Lynn a drink until she talked to him. They started talking and they really hit it off that night. By all reports, Roger was incredibly charming and easy to get along with. They talked all that night, but neither of them mentioned their rank in the army, which was an issue because Lynn was an officer and Roger was enlisted. Romantic relationships between officers and enlisted soldiers are forbidden in part due to the power imbalance. They decided to continue seeing each other regardless, just keeping it discreet. They weren't discreet enough, though, because Roger was confronted about the relationship, though he denied anything was happening. In late 1995, early 1996, Lynn found out she was pregnant. She and Roger decided to get married, so they snuck off to Denmark when they both had time off and got married in February 1996. The rule against officers and enlisted being in a relationship does not apply if you're married. So as soon as they got married, the military couldn't go back and retroactively punish them for their premarital relationship. Getting married essentially fixed the issue. Later that same year, their son was born in Germany. 
Roger was deployed at the time of his birth, and not long after he came home, Lynn was deployed. After she returned, they both put in for a transfer stateside because they wanted to raise their son in the U.S. They were sent to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas in November 1997. Lynn had made it to the rank of captain, so she was in charge of her own unit. In 1999, Roger was deployed to Saudi Arabia for five months. He was home for around seven months when Lynn was then deployed for six months. So in 2000, they celebrated their fifth wedding anniversary, but due to their deployments, they had only lived together for probably half of that time. During Lynn's deployment from March 20th until September 20th, the marriage really deteriorated. Roger told people that he had heard rumors that Lynn was cheating on him while she was in Saudi Arabia, and Lynn heard similar rumors about what Roger was up to back home. Now, Lynn cheating was probably not true, but Roger cheating, that was 100% true. While Lynn was overseas, 27-year-old Roger allowed a lot of people to live in their house full-time and part-time or just for the weekend to party. Many of them were younger soldiers, and some were barely out of high school. There were rumors that some were actually still in high school. They would party all weekend and go out to the bars whenever Roger would have a babysitter for his young son. Lynn would call the house to talk to Roger and check on their son, and he wouldn't answer. It would be 9 or 10 at night, so she would have expected that Roger was home and their son was in bed by then. But either Roger was not home, or he was home but not interested in talking to his wife. About a week before Lynn got home from this deployment, her assistant, Megan, went out to a local restaurant. Megan had come home a little bit earlier than Lynn had, and she saw Roger at a table with a group of people. A younger-looking woman was all cuddled up to Roger. Megan told Dateline that Roger had a look of panic on his face when he saw her, but then he just kind of played it off and said how he didn't know she was back so soon, and he hugged her and acted like everything was fine. Megan did not tell Lynn about this, but she didn't really have to. Rumors in the military are hard to keep quiet. And yes, they do travel across the world from Texas to Saudi Arabia. Shortly before she came home, Lynn left a voicemail for Roger saying that their marriage was not going to survive another deployment like the one she just had and that he needed to remember that he was not a single man. Lynn came home with the intent to repair the marriage, though it was not going to be easy. She and Roger were just not getting along, and then in December 2000, Lynn went to Roger's favorite country bar to surprise him, but ended up being the one who was surprised. He was hanging out with his younger friends and dancing with a woman named April. He saw Lynn, but pretty much ignored her in favor of his dance partner. Lynn and Roger had a blowout fight that night and decided this was it. 
That was the straw that broke the camel's back, and they decided to separate. Roger packed up his things and moved into the army barracks. Days after he left, Lynn's friend Debbie saw April, the woman from the bar, go to the barracks to see Roger. And Debbie had also heard a rumor going around that April was pregnant with Roger's baby. She told Lynn about what she saw and suspected, and Lynn and Debbie decided together to go to April's house to talk to her. Debbie said that Lynn was as nice as could be considering the circumstances, and April admitted that she had an affair with Roger while Lynn was deployed, but she said it ended as soon as Lynn got back. They also confronted April about the rumor she was pregnant, and she denied it. Both of these things, that the affair had ended and that she wasn't pregnant, were not true. But Lynn didn't know it at the time, and she didn't know it when she sat down with Roger to decide what to do next. They had had a week or two to cool off during their separation, and they had to decide if they were moving towards divorce or if they should try to work things out. For the sake of their son and their personal belief that marriages should be repaired if possible, they decided to work towards reconciliation. Roger moved back home and they started marriage counseling. Shortly after they got back together, Roger and Lynn took a trip to visit Roger's family in Florida, which included his younger brother, Rodney. Rodney had recently been released from prison. His criminal record was for things like forgery and theft and grand theft auto, nothing violent, but he was definitely on the wrong path. Lynn and Roger decided to allow him to move in with them in Texas to give him both some guidance and some time to get back on his feet away from his group of friends and associates in Florida. Because of his parole or probation conditions, they had to write to get permission for Rodney to leave Florida and relocate to Texas, essentially offering to take responsibility for him to some degree. Rodney was not meant to live with them indefinitely. He was there until he could find a job and find a place to live. The problem was that Lynn and Roger didn't see him making much progress in that direction. Not only was he not looking for work, Lynn was spending time cleaning up after him as he mostly just laid around. Rather than giving him a hand up, it looked like they were enabling him. Lynn was fed up with it, and Roger said he was too. They talked and made the decision that Rodney had to move out. Though this was a joint decision, Rodney thought Lynn was ultimately responsible for the decision and complained to Roger about her using vile language, and he was angry at Roger for giving in to Lynn's demand to kick him out. So for several weeks, he did cut off contact with both Roger and Lynn, though he did eventually start talking to Roger again. After he was kicked out, with no job and no place to live, Rodney lived half in his car and half on the couches of the few friends he had made until he eventually moved in with his girlfriend. It's understandable that Lynn was tired of taking care of a grown man under any circumstances, but she had also learned in this time frame that she was pregnant again. She had gotten pregnant shortly after she and Roger had reconciled. 
So having a young son and being pregnant and working full-time, I'm not surprised she did not have any more space in her world for Rodney. Now, there was another thing that came with the second pregnancy, and that was that Lynn decided on a career change. I don't have to tell you that deployments are hard on a family under the best circumstances, and clearly this had not been the best circumstances with how bad things went in the marriage during her last deployment. And being separated from her young son in the past had been rough, so Lynn decided to change her career in a direction that would let her be home. She was going to teach ROTC classes, ROTC being Reserve Officer Training Corps, at a university in Minnesota. Her move date was June 1st, 2001, and Roger was also making plans to move up with her. On May 24th, ahead of her move, the unit Lynn was over at Fort Bliss held a going-away party for her during work hours. They got her a plaque, and everyone was there. Everyone except for Lynn. She never showed up to her own party. What no one knew at the time was that she also hadn't made it to her pregnancy checkup that morning either. It was around 5.20 in the evening when Roger came home with their son after work. He saw Lynn's car in the driveway, so he headed inside and called out to her. He went up to the bedroom to check on her, and there he found her lying on the floor and covered in blood. Roger turned around, grabbed their son, and ran back out of the house. He called 911, telling them that he came home and found his wife dead. He said it looked like someone had cut her throat out. When the police arrived on the scene, they found Lynn dead from six deep stab wounds to the head and neck, so deep that she was nearly decapitated. She also had defensive wounds to her hands, showing that she had fought back. There was no forced entry, and a quick look around ruled out robbery. Her purse and keys were in plain sight by the front door, untouched. It took a little bit for Roger to calm down enough to talk to the police at the scene. They wanted him to tell them about the last time he had seen Lynn and his movements throughout that day. So he told them that he had woken up early for work and decided to take their son with him so that Lynn could sleep in and go to her doctor's appointment. He went outside to leave that morning, but his truck wouldn't start. So he called his brother Rodney to come over and give him a jump, which he did. Roger then stopped at a convenience store for gas on the way to work where he was seen. Then he went to work. Roger and another soldier were assembling new shelves that morning. Roger left around 9.30 to go to Home Depot, and he tried to call Lynn before he left, but he didn't get any answer. When he got back around 11.45, he tried to call her again, but she still didn't answer. He had expected her to come get their son after her appointment and was surprised when she didn't. In the afternoon, Roger's brother Rodney stopped by the base to visit him. Then at 4 p.m., Roger's boss told him it was time to start leaving for the day and ended up directly telling him he had to leave the base 
because they didn't want to get in trouble for having him stay too late. Roger then got home, found Lynn's body, and immediately called 911. The investigators asked Roger if he knew anyone who could have done this, and he mentioned that they did have some vandalism to their cars, and he suspected April. He told the police that she had made threatening calls to him, but he lied about her role in his life, saying that she was a babysitter he sometimes hired who had a crush on him. Roger's son even backed this up a bit, saying that there was a woman who came to the house who wanted to marry his daddy. Roger did not mention that he had had an affair with her, but that wouldn't stay quiet for long because obviously April was one of the first people the investigators went to speak to. April told them that her affair with Roger started in August of 2000. This was towards the end of Lynn's deployment. Roger had told April that his marriage was all but over. He repeated the thing he had told other people about how he suspected Lynn was having an affair, and he said he had already spoken with an attorney about the divorce and they would be able to proceed as soon as Lynn finished her deployment. Roger said his only hesitation was a fear that Lynn would get full custody of their son. And April believed him about the state of the marriage because she overheard him fighting with Lynn on the phone, and it certainly didn't sound like a happy marriage to her. When Lynn came back stateside and was attempting to repair the marriage, the affair continued with the two meeting at April's apartment and a few times at the Reister home when Lynn was at work. As they were talking to April, the investigators couldn't help but notice that she was visibly pregnant, and they learned that this was Roger's baby. When she first found out she was pregnant in November of 2000, Roger was excited about it. He told people about the baby and even started picking out names. But when Roger and Lynn reconciled two months later, he broke up with April and then demanded a paternity test. April said he was going to have to wait until the baby was born because she did not want to have the amniocentesis to do the prenatal paternity test. In February 2001, April went to Roger's superiors and reported both the affair and the pregnancy. Affairs are against the military code of conduct, and he could have gotten court-martialed for it. April denied that she went to his superiors in an attempt to have him arrested or to get him into serious trouble. She said it was just to let them know that she would be pursuing child support. But they really didn't need that information five months before her due date, so I do wonder if she sort of, kind of, maybe wouldn't have minded if he got in trouble. April denied to the investigators that she had anything to do with Lynn's murder or that she even wanted her dead, but she did know someone who had told her repeatedly that he wanted Lynn dead, and that was Roger. April said he talked about how much easier it would be for him if Lynn died. She would be out of his life, 
he would have full custody of his son, and Lynn's life insurance payout would pay off the mortgage on their house. He even made a comment to April about wanting to cut Lynn's brakes, but he couldn't be sure that his son wouldn't be in the car and he didn't want his son to get hurt. Plus, Roger said he couldn't kill Lynn himself. He didn't think he could look in his son's eyes knowing that he had physically killed his mother. But he brought up another name to April, someone he thought could kill Lynn for him, and that was Patrick Muller, who went by Mo. So this sent the authorities to another person, Mo Muller, who was a soldier and a close friend of Roger's. When they sat Mo down and confronted him about Lynn's murder, he denied being involved. But the police are pretty used to hearing that. Very few people break down on the first question. But Mo continued to deny it and denied knowing anything about Lynn's murder. But then he started indicating that maybe he did know something. Maybe something about what happened or what might have happened but he was hesitant to speak without some assurances. He didn't want to get in trouble for what he did do, which was not murder Lynn. So Mole Muller was given a deal. He would get immunity for whatever he confessed to, so long as it wasn't directly connected to Lynn's death. With this deal in place, Mo told them what he knew. He said he didn't kill Lynn, but he was going to. Roger had approached him and asked if he would kill his wife for him. Roger launched into something about that's what friends do for each other, and he would have done it for Mo if needed, and then he offered Mo some money from Lynn's life insurance. And Mo said yes. He told the police that Roger set it up so that Mo would go to the house to kill Lynn when he wasn't there and when their son wasn't there. Roger suggested that he stab Lynn in the neck. Mo made it as far as the front door to the house to carry out the murder one day, but then a neighbor came out of her house at the same time, and he was afraid he was spotted. He said Roger was angry he didn't get the job done. Mo insisted he did not kill Lynn on May 24th, and he couldn't have. He had left town the night before to go to Colorado for a funeral, and this was easily verified. He had barely gotten back when he was questioned by the police. Though Mo couldn't have done it, based on his statement, it sounded like Roger may have found someone else. I do want to note that Mo's story would change a bit on retelling, and we'll get back to him a little later. This was still very early in the investigation, and the police were not sure who had actually carried out the murder of Lynn Reister, but had suspected Roger was the mastermind. They had interviewed April, Moe, Roger, and Roger's brother, Rodney. They also took prints from Roger and Rodney because they had both recently been in the house, and you need to be able to rule out sources of prints that do belong to identify the ones that don't belong. But the police didn't need everyone's prints to identify one palm print that definitely did not belong. In processing the evidence from Lynn's body, they found a palm print in blood on her arm. 
it was shockingly not terribly smeared because you can imagine if there's a struggle, even a brief one, and the killer grabbed her arm, the print wouldn't be clear at all. But for some reason, he had rested his hand on her arm and then lifted it, leaving behind a print that could be fairly clearly defined. As they compared the print on Lynn's arm to the samples they had already collected, Roger's brother Rodney Reister's print stood out as a possibility. They called him back in the same day to the station to give a second set of prints, telling him the first set weren't clear enough. Rodney agreed to come down, he showed up, was printed again, and then he left. They compared the print on the body now to the new set from Rodney, and it was a match. The following day, May 26th, just two days after the murder, they called Rodney again and asked him to come back into the station that evening. They took him into an interrogation room, and he was told they had an arrest warrant for him. They read him his rights and handcuffed him. Rodney initially said he didn't want to make a statement, but when they pushed back a little bit, Rodney relented. He waived his rights and also gave them consent to search his apartment and his car. They uncuffed him at the start of the interview. Rodney first denied killing Lynn, but the investigators told him that Roger had already rolled over on him. They knew he did it. Now, this was not at all true, but we know the police can and will lie to you during an interrogation. But Rodney didn't fall for it and held firm, continuing to deny any involvement. About two hours into the interrogation, they decided to play their ace card. They told Rodney that his handprint was found on Lynn's body. At this point, Rodney got emotional and his denials stopped. He then admitted that he had killed Lynn. He told them how he did it. In this process, he implicated Roger. Rodney said that Roger was worried about how much he had to lose in a divorce. Lynn made more money than he did and was moving to Minnesota, somewhere he didn't want to go. With her now having a job that would not lead to deployments, her higher income level, and being that she was the mother, he worried the courts would side with her and he would lose custody of his son and possibly even have to pay child support. And if his affair came out in this process of the divorce, he could also be court-martialed. But if Lynn died, Roger would have sole custody, plus her life insurance money, plus avoid the messy details of the affair coming out. Rodney said that Roger set the entire thing up. That morning when Roger called and said his truck battery was dead, Rodney knew that was the code, that it was time to go through with the murder. He met Roger at the house and Roger let him in. He said Roger showed him where the knife was and hugged him, and then Roger left with his son. Roger had suggested to Rodney that he stab Lynn in the throat first to stop her from screaming, which seemed significant since Mo Muller said that he had suggested the same thing to him. Rodney told the investigators that he snuck up to Lynn's bedroom where she was asleep. He looked at her and lost his nerve. 
He was about to turn and leave when Lynn woke up and saw him in her bedroom holding a knife. She began pleading with him, saying that whatever Roger said about her was a lie. Rodney said he couldn't back out then since she had seen him, so he lunged at her with the knife. It was a short struggle, but he managed to overpower her and stab her to death. After Lynn died and her unborn baby with her, Rodney left the scene, visiting Roger at work later that day, which let Roger know the killing had been done. After Rodney gave this confession, they typed it up and he signed it. He was then booked into jail and an arrest warrant for Roger Reister was issued. Within 72 hours of Lynn's murder, the police had a confession from the killer and the person who set the murder plot into motion in custody. But they soon had an issue. Rodney, the alleged hired hitman, refused to testify against his brother. Rodney was facing the death penalty, and I imagine there was some back and forth about taking it off the table if he would testify against Roger. I really can't see a world where they asked him nicely to testify, and when he wouldn't do it, they didn't offer him any incentive to testify. I imagine there were talks, but whatever was offered to him wasn't going to fly because he still refused to testify. If Rodney did not testify, his confession, which was the main piece of evidence against Roger, couldn't be used in Roger's trial. It could be used in Rodney's trial, but for Roger, Roger had a Sixth Amendment right to confront his accuser. Rodney was the accuser. If he wouldn't testify, he couldn't be cross-examined. And the investigators couldn't testify about the confession. That would have been the detective telling the jury what Rodney said that Roger said, and that is hearsay. The murder charge against Roger was dropped. However, based on what the investigation uncovered, they could charge him with something else. They brought him up on multiple counts of criminal solicitation of murder for the attempts to get someone to kill his wife. To set up their case, the prosecution had six witnesses who all heard Roger talk about wanting Lynn dead, and two of them said he tried to solicit them to commit the murder. One of the witnesses who heard Roger talk about wanting Lynn dead was a woman named Sarah, who went to the police after she learned about the murder. She was one of the people who stayed in the house in the summer of 2000 when Lynn was deployed. Roger had told her that he was worried he would lose out in a divorce, and he also acknowledged to her that April was pregnant with his child, and he hoped she was actually having twins. Sarah said he seemed pretty excited about the pregnancy with April. On May 17, 2001, a week before the murder, Sarah was at the Stampede nightclub with a group of friends that included Roger. She testified that she asked him how things were going and if he was in the process of his divorce yet. He said there was a change in plans and he actually planned to kill Lynn instead. Sarah laughed it off, thinking he was kidding, and even asked him that. You're kidding, right? And he said no. He had $1,000 saved up for a hitman who he could pay that up front, and then the rest of the payment would come from the life insurance. Sarah expressed some confusion, disbelief over the idea that someone would kill another person 
for just $1,000 up front and an IOU. Roger explained that he really couldn't get more money than that in advance. He had taken the $1,000 out of the bank in small increments as to not look suspicious. Anything more than that would be too easy to trace back to him. Roger said that there were already two failed attempts on Lynn's life, one by someone he didn't name and the other by Rodney. Rodney had gone to the house to kill Lynn, but left because he heard what he thought was moaning. Worried Lynn was there with another man, he took off. Now, you might want to stop me and point out that this is hearsay, Sarah testifying to what Roger said Rodney heard. And it would be inadmissible hearsay against Rodney, but not against Roger because she's telling the jury what Roger told her. Not all hearsay is inadmissible, and it does sometimes depend on who the testimony is being used against. Sarah continued her testimony about the May 17th conversation, saying that she asked Roger why he didn't kill Lynn himself, and he said that it would leave too many clues pointing to him as the husband, and he would end up getting caught. But if someone else did it, the evidence wouldn't point to him. Though Sarah didn't believe Roger at first, she testified that the more he talked, the more she believed he was serious. Now, backing up her testimony was another friend of Roger's named Jacob. He said Roger told him that the plans to kill Lynn had been finalized, and he needed Jacob to act surprised when he heard about the murder. He also said he paid the $1,000 up front from those small amounts he had been stashing away. But the state didn't just have people testifying about Roger talking about the plans. They had two people who said they were asked by Roger to kill Lynn, and the first was Mo Muller. Mo testified at Roger's trial that they met in mid-1999 when they were both deployed in Saudi Arabia. He moved into Roger's house when Lynn was deployed, and he testified about the parties they were having at the house. One night, Roger talked to Lynn on the phone, and after he hung up, he said he thought about stabbing her to death. Mo was already used to hearing Roger complain about Lynn at this point, so he didn't think much of it. But Roger brought it up repeatedly during Lynn's deployment, usually after having talked to her on the phone. These conversations were not just a vague, I wish she was dead, or I could just kill her, but rather specific ideas and plans he had. Things like telling Mo he could stab her in the throat in a way that maybe made it look like she fell and accidentally impaled herself on something. Another idea he had was to stage a robbery gone wrong. As for what Mo would get out for carrying out any of these plans, Roger brought up the money from the life insurance policy, and he also told Mo he could have Lynn's car. Mo moved out of the house before Lynn got back from deployment and was deployed himself soon after. So he and Roger had no more conversations about killing Lynn until he was back from overseas in March 2001. Mo went to see Roger at Fort Bliss, and Roger suggested they sit in his truck to talk. They spent the first bit of the conversation just catching up, and Roger mentioned the marriage to Lynn was still not going well. Mind you, at this point, Lynn thought things were getting back on track. They were in counseling and expecting their second child. Roger had broken things off with April, and Lynn didn't see signs he was cheating with anyone else. 
so Lynn was pretty oblivious to what Roger was up to behind the scenes. Roger asked Mo if he would be willing to kill Lynn for him. Mo said yes. He was asked why he said yes, and Mo replied, because Roger was his friend. They then made a plan. Roger would arrange it so that he would pick their son up from daycare after work so that Lynn would be home alone in the late afternoon. Roger would set things up in advance. He would leave a knife on the table by the front door, and he would put a change of clothes where Mo could find them. He would also make sure their dogs were outside in the yard. Mo was supposed to enter through the unlocked front door and then attack Lynn wherever she was in the house. And Roger specifically said to stab her in the neck to stop her from screaming. Then Mo would change out of the bloody clothing, ransack the house to stage the robbery, and then leave, taking the murder weapon and bloody clothes with him to discard somewhere else. In return, Roger would collect the insurance money, and he would hold on to it until the investigation went cold. Then he would give Mo gradual access to it, as to not raise any red flags with the investigators. Mo said it was about a week after they hatched this plan in Roger's truck that he tried to put it into action. He believed it was either March 13th or 14th, around 5.45, when he got to the house. He began to open the door, which was unlocked as promised, but then he saw that next-door neighbor. Mo had lived at the house for a few months the previous summer, and it was possible the neighbor would have recognized him. Even if she didn't know his name, she probably saw him come and go from the house. If Lynn was then found dead later that night, this neighbor could point to Mo as the killer. Mo knew he couldn't go through with it, but to look like he had a legitimate reason to be standing on the porch, he said he pretended to ring the doorbell, he stood there a minute like he was waiting on Lynn to answer the door, and then he left. While he wasn't sure of the exact date this happened, he knew it was in March, after he visited Roger, but before he left for a two-week leave to Wisconsin on March 16th. He said he then bumped into Roger and Lynn a day or so before the murder as they were leaving the base. They stopped to chat, and Roger told Mo things were going great and they were preparing to move to Minnesota for Lynn's new job. But then Roger looked him in the eye and winked with what Mo described as a smirk. When Mo was cross-examined by the defense team, it was in a manner that has been described as rigorous and effective in court papers. Every inconsistency of his story was dissected, as were the elements of his story that he stuck to. A glaring example was that Mo said he backed out of the murder when he was at the front door of the Reister home and thought the next-door neighbor may have seen him. But when you're standing at the Reister doorstep, you can't see the next-door neighbor, and they can't see you. It was impossible that it happened exactly the way Mo described. The defense also pulled out the records from the daycare. Daycare requires signing in and out, and both of the days Mo said were the likely date he went to the house, Lynn had picked up their son from daycare, not Roger. So she would have been home with their son, who was four years old, and knew Mo. So was he really going to go try to kill her on a day where the little boy was home and could have recognized him? 
And if Roger was making all these plans, wouldn't he have not given the go-ahead on a day he knew his son was home? But Moe's inconsistencies aside, he was not the only person claiming Roger tried to hire him to kill Lynn. The other was Brian Broxterman. He and Roger were not close, but they were in a larger social circle together and both worked at the base. In early May 2001, Roger went to Brian's house because Brian's yard was overgrown and he had some junk on his back porch. Roger was there because the base officials told him to go there and tell Brian to mow and clean up his property. That was probably their most significant interaction until about a week or two later when Brian bumped into Roger as Roger was coming back on base after lunch. Roger asked Brian if he knew anyone who needed to make some extra money. Roger said the job was to kill his wife and mentioned she had a life insurance policy, indicating that Roger could afford to pay for this job. He even made a comment about how her car alarm could be set off because it was loud enough to drown out the sounds of her screaming. Roger gave Brian his number in case he knew anyone, but Brian didn't take him seriously. He testified he didn't really think more about it until Mo called him from Colorado a week later to tell him that Lynn had been murdered. He said he planned to go to the police and he had told his wife about what he knew, but the investigators had shown up at his house before he even reached out to them. So in this case, two counts of the criminal solicitation were for trying to hire Mo Muller and Brian Broxterman. Another count was for soliciting Rodney in the incident that Sarah said Rodney backed out of. The fourth charge was for the actual day of the murder. Though they didn't have Rodney to testify, they did have some evidence, and they had Rodney's girlfriend at the time, Amber. She testified that Roger and Rodney's relationship was not great in the spring of 2001 after Roger had kicked him out, but they had reconnected in May. Amber testified that on May 23rd, the day before the murder, Roger came over to the apartment. She did not know what the two talked about. The next morning, the phone rang around 6 a.m., and Rodney spent about 15 minutes getting ready, and he left. He came back to the apartment, and Amber believed she heard Roger's voice in the apartment that morning. The state also had the evidence of Rodney visiting his brother at work that day, something he rarely did. It seems strange that the two would have little contact for months and then see each other multiple times the day before and the day of Lynn's murder. Did Rodney really kill his sister-in-law and then just visit his brother at work like nothing happened? Or did Roger know what happened? Roger's defense was that he had no idea that Rodney had killed his wife. And to explain this all away, he took the stand in his own defense. Roger's testimony can be summed up as everyone else was lying. Roger denied telling anyone, let alone multiple people, that he thought Lynn was having an affair. While he admitted his own affair with April, he claimed it ended two months before he and Lynn even had their blow-up. After that, when they decided to reconcile, everything was going well. Counseling helped them put the past behind them, and he didn't mind the move to Minnesota, which would have given him more time with their son and a chance to go to college. 
As far as Rodney went, Roger said his brother was troubled, but he had no idea the extent of it until he moved him to Texas. He denied he asked Rodney, Moe, or Brian to kill his wife. He denied he told Moe, April, Jacob, and Sarah anything about wanting her dead, tampering with breaks, paying people to kill her, and so on and so on. For whatever reason, they were all lying. The jury didn't buy it, and Roger was convicted. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Rodney then went on trial for the murder of Lynn Reister about a year later. He initially tried to get his confession tossed, claiming it had been coerced. First, he claimed he asked for an attorney and wasn't given one, and then he claimed he was told he would only be charged with manslaughter if he spoke to them willingly. Obviously, both of these things are not allowed by police in an interrogation, but Rodney's story about these issues wasn't entirely consistent. He claimed someone who wasn't even working that day was the one who made assurances that he would only be charged with manslaughter, so it didn't really add up. He also argued the police lied to him about his brother implicating him in the crime, but this lie was within the guidelines of what police are permitted to lie about, and even if it wasn't, Rodney didn't confess at that point. He confessed two hours later after he was told about the palm print, which seemed to be the real catalyst to the confession, and that was not a lie. The judge ruled the confession was not coerced. So the defense strategy at trial was to argue against the aggravating factor that could lead to the death penalty. That factor was that this was a murder for hire. So rather than being a paid hitman, Rodney's defense argued that he killed Lynn instead just because he loved his brother and not because of money. And this claim was actually backed up by none other than Moe Muller. Moe had been arrested for something unrelated to this case, and they put him into the same cell as Rodney. This sounds to me like the police were hoping to turn this into an informant situation. But what Moe relayed didn't help prove Rodney to be a paid hitman. Instead, Moe said he asked Rodney why he killed Lynn, and Rodney said he did it because he loved Roger, and that Roger promised to take care of him but he explicitly said no money was handed over. This case went to the jury and they came back with a guilty verdict. Guilty of murder, not capital murder. They did not find for the aggravating factor and Rodney Reister was then given a life sentence. As for Roger and Lynn's son, he was raised by one of her sisters and he went on to study forensics in college. For those who loved Lynn and already loved her second child, even though he hadn't been born yet, they are haunted by the idea that no fewer than six people knew Roger wanted Lynn dead, and not one of them came forward until they were already burying Lynn and her baby. Any one of the six could have tried to stop this, but they didn't. And that's something they are going to have to make peace with themselves. As for Roger and Rodney Reister, they are both first eligible for parole in 2031. Roger maintains his innocence, claiming that everyone else is a liar. Everyone except for him. 
Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.